Our message this evening is entitled, Revelation's Mysterious Horsemen. Through these symbols of the apocalypse, we're going to find the answer to the question, why if there's only one God, are there so many different denominations? Brothers and sisters, if you were to go to the local phone book and go to the section on churches, you will find scores and scores of different churches to choose from. In fact, it's been estimated that there's over 1,500 different denominations and faith groups in the United States of America alone. From Assemblies of God to Zionists, from Baptists to Methodists and Church of Christ to Church of God and Pentecostals to Presbyterians and Unification churches to universal Unitarian churches, and then you have Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Christian Reform, Calvary Chapel, Church of Christ, the True Church of God, and many other non-denominational churches to choose from. And friends, with all the different options, how many of you have had that question before? Why so many options? I mean, if there's only one God and only one Bible, why so many different churches to choose from? And friends, what's very interesting is that all the churches claim to teach truth. Isn't that right? You will never go to any church here in Kahului and Maui, and you will never find a sign on any of the churches that says we only have 60% of the truth. You will not find a sign like that in any church. You see, every single church claims to teach the truth. But with so many different doctrines and conflicting ideas, they all can't be right in their claim to teach the truth. Because truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Jesus said that the Word of God is the truth. Can you say amen? And so, why so many options then? And what about their claims in teaching the truth? First of all, I want us to understand that it's not God's will for there to be many different churches. Some people say that, Uh, It's good to have many different churches to meet many different needs. But friends, this is not God's plan. In fact, notice what Jesus said in the book of John chapter 17 and verse 21. Jesus was praying to the Father in Gethsemane and he said, he requested, he shared the desire of his heart and notice the desire of Jesus for his people. That they may all be many. Is that what it says? How many? That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Here we find Jesus praying for the oneness and the unity of his church, his people on earth. It's not his will for us to be fragmented and scattered into many different churches and denominations. God wants us to be unified. The same unity that Jesus has with his father, he desires that unity amongst the church, amongst the people of God. And the Bible tells us that the oneness of the people of God is going to be evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is truly the scent of God. And the fact that there are so many atheists, agnostics, and infidels in our world today is because the church of God is not one. We're scattered and fragmented into many different denominations. No wonder why there are so many unbelievers. Because as the world looks upon the, the fighting that is taking place amongst the denominations, they think to themselves, their God must not be real if they can't get along. You see, brothers and sisters, God desires for there to be one body, one church unified in a perfect unity, unity, as the Son has unity with God the Father. But question, how or what does this unity look like specifically? 
In other words, in what way is Jesus seeking to unify his people, his church on earth? Notice what the Bible tells us in the book of John chapter 4 and verse 23. In this passage, Jesus describes what a true worshiper of God looks like. Notice what it says in John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, when the what kind of worshipers? Now, friends, stop right there. If there are true worshipers, that implies that there also has to be false worshipers. People who worship God in vain, like what Jesus said. And friends, if I'm going to worship the Lord, I don't want to be a false worshiper. I want to be a true worshiper. Can you say amen? amen? Friends, I want the real deal. How about you? And so what constitutes a true worshiper of God? It continues. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in what two ways? In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Here we find that which constitutes a true worshiper of God is that they're going to worship the Lord in spirit, but also in the truth, which shows us that a false worshiper, a vain worshiper, is one that would worship God in spirit, but not truth, or in truth, but not spirit. But in order to be a true worshiper, we must have both of these, spirit and truth, together. Can you say amen? In other words, we must worship in the spirit, being sincere, being led by the spirit of God. But we also must worship according to the truth of the word of God. John 17, 17 tells us, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In other words, the Bible is telling us that we can't just worship God however we want to worship. We have to worship according to the truth of the teachings of the Bible. Can you say amen? If we're not worshiping God according to the truth, we are a false or a counterfeit worshiper of God. We're worshiping God in vain. You see, brothers and sisters, for every truth, there's a counterfeit. Isn't that right? There are true worshipers, but then there are false worshipers. And friends, there is also a true unity, but there's also a counterfeit unity that is sweeping across the churches of today. You see, when you look at the Christian world today, you find an ecumenical unity that is taking place where churches are actually saying to each other, let's put aside all our doctrinal differences and let's come together in unity. And friends, that does sound good, doesn't it? But let me tell you, friends, this is not the unity of of God. The Holy Spirit is not behind this type of unity because never, 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 never does God ever want us to lay aside the truth for the sake of unity, peace, and harmony. In fact, notice what Jesus said In the book of Matthew, chapter 10, and verse 34, Jesus, brothers and sisters, tells us clearly, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace on earth, but a what? And friends, do you know what that sword is? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, Jesus did not come primarily to bring peace and harmony and unity amongst the people. He came to bring the sword of the truth, brothers and sisters. Never does he want us to lay aside or to compromise or to water down the truth for the sake of getting along with everyone. You see, the truth of God's word sometimes divides. Now, I shouldn't say that. It's the opposition to the truth of God's word that divides. When we receive the truth, it brings us together in unity. Can you say amen? You see, the ecumenical movement, which is a counterfeit unity, says let's sacrifice the truth let's lay aside the truth for the sake of getting along peace and harmony it's unity in the spirit but not in the truth and friends this is not god's plan in fact notice what the bible says in the book of james chapter 3 in verse 17 the bible says but the wisdom that is from above is first what pure 
then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Here we find that the wisdom, the knowledge, the truth that is from above is first pure before it's peaceable. In other words, in God's word, purity of the truth is more important than peace amongst individuals. And friends, while we see this counterfeit unity spreading far and wide, God is looking for the genuine unity in spirit and in truth amongst His church, His people on earth. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes when we accept the truth of God's Word, and there's someone in our family that rejects it, it brings division. It's a sword that cuts. But friends, when we receive the truth by, that comes by the Holy Spirit, it's only then that we can experience the genuine unity that God desires, the oneness He desires amongst the church of God. And so, friends, let's not get involved in this counterfeit unity that says let's lay aside doctrinal differences for the sake of peace. No, friends, God wants us to uphold the truth of God's word. This is what the true worshipers are going to do. The Lord, the Father, is seeking for these true worshipers. And not only the Father, but so also the Son is looking for these people. In fact, notice what the Bible says in the book of John chapter 10 and verse 16. John 10, 16, Jesus said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Let's stop right there. Friends, the Bible is clear that God has his sheep that are not of his fold. He has his sheep that he claims as his own in every single fold or every single faith group and denomination in the world. You see, in this passage, in this chapter, Jesus is introducing himself to us as the gentle shepherd. And another word for shepherd is pastor. In other words, he's the true pastor of the church. Can you say amen? And the true pastor tells us that he has some sheep, some sincere seekers and believers in him that are not of his church, his fold. They're scattered into all the different denominations. Let's be clear tonight that every denomination is going to be represented in heaven. Can you say amen? God has his people in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church, in the Methodist Church, in the Presbyterian Churches, and other non-denominational churches. We find as we go to these places, the sheep of God, and friends, the sheep are those who are living up to all the light they know. They're sincere, and they're following the shepherd the best they know how. Jesus said, I have them in all the churches, in all the different folds. But here's the question. Is it God's will for his sheep to be scattered in the different churches? The rest of the verse says, notice, Another sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be how many flocks? One flock and? Friends, listen, the same way there's only one true shepherd, one true pastor. According to the words of this pastor, there is only one true flock. One true body, one true church. God has his sheep in all the churches, but he wants to bring them together in unity, not just in spirit, but unity in the spirit and in the truth. He's calling his people, his sheep, to join this one fold. And friends, the reason for this is because not every fold, not every church, not every path, not every gate leads to the pearly gates of heaven. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Please write it down. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. 
Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are how many? Few there be that find it. Here Jesus tells us that not every path leads to heaven, folks. Jesus said there's one way to heaven. It's the narrow gate. It's the difficult way. The Bible tells us that the broad and easy way is the way of the majority, but this way leads to destruction, and it's the narrow road, the narrow gate that leads to everlasting life. And Jesus said that few there be that find it. Do you know why? Because there are few people who are really seeking for the truth in our day and age. You see, the majority of people, the majority in the Christian world, they want a religion that is convenient, that is easy that makes them feel good about themselves. But friends, true religion is not about convenience. It's about conversion. Can you say amen? But majority wants a convenient religion that meets their needs. In fact, Paul, the apostle, prophesied that this time would come within the Christian world. Notice what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Bible tells us that the time will come when they will not endure. What kind of doctrine? Sound doctrine. But after their own lust, their own carnal desires, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto what? Unto fables. The Bible prophesies a time in the Christian world where people will not be able to endure sound doctrine. In other words, they will not be able to handle hearing the truth because sometimes the truth cuts us. It's a two-edged sword. It rebukes our selfishness and our sinfulness, and it calls us to repent and turn from our evil ways. And the Bible tells us there will be a time in the Christian world when they're not going to want to hear these types of things. But they're going to have itching ears. And they're going to seek for teachers that will satisfy the itching ear that will tell them, how, tell them things that will make them feel good in their sins. You see, friends, in the Christian world, we've come to a time where people would rather believe a beautiful lie than a difficult truth. Did you notice that? They would rather believe a beautiful lie because it makes them feel good. It looks so appealing and so attractive rather than a difficult truth that calls for change, that calls for conversion and self-denial and self-sacrifice. This, brothers and sisters, is counterfeit Christianity. Tell me what pleases my ears. Christianity, friends, in a general sense in our day and age, has become an easy and popular religion. With these mega churches and giga churches and friends, uh, whole entire stadiums are filled with people. And let me just tell you something. Here's a good rule of thumb. If something is popular in the Christian world, it's probably not true. Because what is popular is not always right. And what is right is almost never popular at all. Jesus said it's the broad way the way of the majority that leads to destruction. And brothers and sisters, we find churches nowadays looking more and more like social clubs instead of sanctuaries of truth. Theatrics are taking the place of the proclamation of the word of God. They're removing the pulpit. And friends, when you remove the pulpit, when you remove the, 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 the word of God, what do you have? You have a stage for people to be entertained. And we find that many churches in our day and age, emotionalism, is taking the place of deep conviction of heart. Yes, there's an increase of membership, an increase of quantity, but at the same time, there's a decrease in true spirituality. And many of the leaders of these mega churches acknowledge that this is exactly the case. They've done studies that have shown that, yes, we've increased in membership, but the spirituality, for some reason, is not increasing as well. People are worshiping God in spirit, but they're not worshiping God in the truth. 
This is counterfeit Christianity. And the apostle warned us that this would take place. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 5 and verse 7. Write it down. The Bible tells us that in the Christian world, people would have a form of godliness. In other words, outwardly they look godly and pious and spiritual. But it's just a form, friends. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. An outward form of godliness, but no power in their lives. And why is there no power? Because they're ever learning things, but they're not learning the truth. They're learning good, nice stories. Preacher gets up, reads one or two verses, and the rest of the time he tells stories, makes people laugh, makes people feel good about themselves. Individuals in the Christian world are ever learning, but they're not learning that which is most important. They're not learning the truth. And how do I know this? Because I have many sincere, wonderful people come to the seminar, and after attending it, they tell me things like this. Taj, I've learned more in three weeks than my entire 50 years of going to the church I'm going to and being a Christian. Friends, how could that be? How could you learn more in three weeks than in 50 years? There is a major problem in many of the churches of our day and age. There's little and even no substance coming from many pulpits. People claim we have the spirit and therefore we don't really need the truth. We feel the spirit of God in this place. We feel the the burning in the bosom. We feel it. Therefore, we don't need the truth because we have the spirit. But friends, it's a counterfeit spirit. And a counterfeit spirit will always lead to a counterfeit truth. And so, friends, what is genuine Christianity all about? It's not about convenience. It's about conversion. It's not about my needs. It's about God's will. Can you say amen? Jesus told us in the book of John, chapter 16, verse 13, that when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Friends, if we truly have the spirit... Listen, friends, if we truly have the Spirit, what's going to happen? We're going to be guided and led into not just some, but into all the truth. In other words, we can't separate the true Spirit from the truth. Any Spirit that downplays the truth of God's Word is not a Holy Spirit. It is a counterfeit, unclean Spirit that causes people to become comfortable in Christian complacency. You see, the Spirit of God is going to lead us into a belief and understanding of the truth because it's not about convenience, it's about conversion. It's not about my needs and my schedule, it's about God's will. It's esteeming the truth of God above everything else, above every earthly relationship, above our relationship with our spouses and our children and our parents. It's saying that God comes first in my life, above any employer, above any job. Above any church or relationship, it's saying that the truth of God is more important than anything else. Can you say amen? And so Jesus made it clear that not every road, not every gate, not every church, not every fold leads to heaven. Because many of them have been corrupted by compromising counterfeits that lead to spiritual confusion. And so the next question is this then. Now that we've laid that foundation, the question is this. What exactly caused the corrupting and the fragmenting of the Christian church. Where do all these different denominations come from? And why did they come into existence? Well, this answer is revealed to us in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the sixth chapter, I invite you to turn there with me. Revelation, what chapter are we going to? We find the history of the Christian church from the first to the 21st century. Friends, tonight we're going we're to talk about church history in connection with Bible prophecy. 
where all the different churches came from. And in the sixth chapter of Revelation, we find the first four seals, which describes four mysterious horsemen galloping across the sky. And through the symbols of the horsemen, God reveals the history and future of the Christian church from the first to the 21st century, and how they began as one in a very pure state, but then how they became corrupted, and then after that fragmented into thousands of different denominations. And then after we trace the history of the church, we're going to see that at the end of time, Jesus, the true pastor, the gentle shepherd, is seeking to gather all of his sheep, his sincere people, from all the different folds and churches and denominations into the one true fold to unify us in spirit and in truth. You see, brothers and sisters, these four horsemen represent God's church in four different ages in history. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. Notice what the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 13 and 14. Notice what the horse is a symbol of in the Bible. Isaiah 63, verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, that led them through the deep as on a horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. So in this passage, we see God likening a, a man leading a horse through the wilderness as himself who led his people through the wilderness. And so we see that the horse is a symbol of God's people. It represents the church of God. In fact, notice another one. Please write it down. In Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 3, the Bible tells us, For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly what? <clears throat> as his goodly horse in the battle. So once again, God likens the house of Judah, which is simply his people, the church. And friends, even though it says it's the house of Judah, friends, we are the house of God. We are spiritual Israel. Can you say amen? It's the New Testament church, and God likens his church to a horse in the battle. And so we find these four horsemen represents God's people, the house of Judah, spiritual Israel, or his church, but it represents the church in four different ages throughout history. And so let's go through them together. Notice the first horse in Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Revelation 6 and verse 1, if you're there, and if you're ready to study the Bible, would you please say amen? amen. Revelation chapter 6, and by the way, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation talks about the ascension of Christ into heaven after the resurrection. Chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation describes the inauguration of the, of the heavenly ministry of Christ that began when he ascended to heaven in the first century. And so as you go to chapter 6, now we find the future after the time of the resurrection of Christ. And so notice, God's church in four ages. The Bible tells us Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard, as it were, a noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a what color horse? A white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Here we find the first horse that comes upon the scene. Its color is white, which is a color of purity. The Bible tells us that this horse and the rider went forth conquering and to conquer. A crown was upon his head, and a bow with arrows were in his hand. And friends, the New Testament believers understood the symbol of the white horse. It represented righteous, pure victory. Friends, this was during the time when the church of God was a triumphant, victorious, pure, and righteous church. You see, the rider upon the horse that wears the crown represents Christ, who is the head of the church 
And he's going forth to conquer souls from the kingdom of darkness, not with the force of arms and military might, but he's conquering individuals with the arrows of the truth, the Holy Spirit conviction that pierces the hearts of individuals with the truth of God's word. It was the time that souls were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and they were conquered for the kingdom of light. Then, friends, this was during the time of the early apostolic church. The what time period? The early apostolic church. The time that multitudes were conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the arrows of truth. And by the way, friends, we find parallel imagery of God's pure church, the early apostolic church, in Revelation chapter 12. We're going to study this more in detail tomorrow evening. But in the 12th chapter of Revelation, we find the early apostolic church also clothed in pure white garments. And so we find that it, it's a symbol of purity. And the reason why they are white, they are pure, is because they receive their doctrines directly from the lips of Christ, untainted and uncorrupted by human error and tradition. You see, both the woman and the white horse represents the time of the early apostolic church when the Christian faith was a powerful and a pure conquering faith. Once again, it was pure because they received it directly from Jesus. And friends, when the church has a pure and true message, you can be sure that God is going to bless that church. Can you say amen? He's going to bless that church with Holy Spirit power to conquer the kingdom of darkness and to rescue souls from the kingdom of light, uh, uh, rescue souls from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. You see, now God can bless them. They are safe for him to bless with the Holy Spirit power. And this, brothers and sisters, is what empowered the evangelism of the early apostolic church. Notice how they're described in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. The Bible tells us that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and of women. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were baptized in a day. The church was triumphing over the kingdom of darkness. And brothers and sisters, the reason why is because they had a pure message. So God was able to bless them. They were safe to bless. You see, God is not going to bless a church that has a false message. Can you say amen? When the church has a pure message, it's then that conversions, true conversions, are going to take place. Not emotionalism, not just an increase of membership, but an increase of spirituality. And this is what happened, brothers and sisters. In fact, I want you to notice the model of the early apostolic church. Those early apostles said in Acts 5.29, they said, We ought to obey God rather than man. In other words, they were not concerned with peace and harmony with the other religious leaders of the day. They esteemed the truth of God's word and obedience to God above the laws and the wills and the desires of other people. And friends, this was the time of the early apostolic church, and it lasted from around 31 to about 100 AD. Now, friends, mind you, this is not a time prophecy, so these are approximate dates. When we look in history, you find that during these time periods, the church was triumphing, and it fits the characteristics. From the time of the resurrection of Christ to about 100 AD, the Christian faith was a pure, conquering faith. And friends, Satan tried his best to destroy the church of God. Satan had to do something, and he had to do it fast. And so now we find the next prophetic picture of the horse comes upon the scene. And now the color is no longer white, but it's red, which is the color of blood. Notice what the Bible says now in verse 4. And there went out another horse that was what color? That was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Here we find a rough rider in red. The color of purity changes to the color of bloody 
persecution. This is what it represents. I want you to notice what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. The Bible tells us, whoever lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? And that's exactly what was taking place with the white horse period. The church was living godly in Christ Jesus. And friends, when we have a pure faith and are living godly and doing the right thing and following the Lord, we will excite the wrath of the dragon. And thus Satan began a fierce era of bloody red persecution as the church was triumphing. Satan declared war against the woman, against the white horse. Satan had to stop them, so he began to persecute the church of God. And the gospel message of peace was trampled upon by individuals. You see, friends, this red horse time period represents the time when the Christian faith was a blood-stained and persecuted faith. If you study history, you'll notice that Satan influenced the pagan Romans. Roman leaders like Nero and Diocletian to begin to torture the early apostolic church. They were put to death in cruel and hideous ways. You see, friends, the purity of their faith was an open rebuke to the wickedness of the pagan Romans. And by the way, friends, recently I got the chance to visit Rome just last April. And when I was there, I went to the Colosseum there at Rome. And it was in the Colosseum that Christians were thrown to be devoured by wild animals, burnt at the stake as a form of entertainment for the pagan Romans. Satan began a fierce era of bloody red persecution. When I was in Rome, I got the chance to visit the Mamertine prison, and I took this picture of the prison cell that the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul was held in in Roman captivity before they suffered a martyr's death. It was a cold, dark cell, brothers and sisters. And I can just imagine the apostles in this cell, they were persecuted for the faith. And shortly after that, history tells us that Peter, the apostle, was crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to be crucified like his master was. And the apostle Paul had his head chopped off by Emperor Nero. We got the chance to visit Nero's house. We saw these things. You see, it's red, brothers and sisters, bloody persecution. And when I was in Rome, I also got the chance to visit the Church of the Martyrs. It's a church right there in the Vatican. And on the walls of this church are pictures. Do you see it? And these pictures depict actual executions of actual Christians. These were not uh, just storytelling. These were real people. Under each picture was the names and the dates of individuals who died these cruel and torturous deaths. And friends, notice some of the ways that the Christians died. They were tortured, brothers and sisters. They, were, they had their tongues cut off and their hands cut off, very cruel by the pagan Romans. Satan tried to destroy the church of God, and many of them were faced and offered an easy way out of a very cruel death. So they said to the Christians, all you have to do is acknowledge the supremacy of the Caesar. Just offer a little incense and bow down to our pagan idols, and we will spare you a cruel and torturous death. Just bow to the idol, kiss the ring of the Caesar or, 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 the, or, or, or the governors. And friends, these individuals, these Christians, they would rather die with the promise of eternal life rather than live a lie. They faced death with courage, brothers and sisters. They were not afraid to die because they had the hope of a resurrection. And so the red horse time period lasted from around 100 to about 313 AD. You see, their faith was greater than the fires of persecution. Death could not defeat the, God, the church of God because the more they were persecuted, the more they actually grew in number. Did you know that? Satan tried to destroy them by persecution, but it wasn't working. The more they were persecuted, the more they began to grow in number. Well, how in the world could this happen? 
I want you to notice what history tells us. It describes what took place. Tertullian was a, a church historian back in those times. And he said, you may torment, afflict, and vex us. Your wickedness puts our weakness to the test, but your cruelty is of no avail. It is but a stronger invitation to bring others to our persuasion. The more we are mowed down, the more we spring up again. The blood of Christians is seed. You see, what happened was this. As the pagans sought to destroy the church of God, the more they grew in number. The blood of the martyrs was like seed for the gospel. And the reason why is because as the pagans beheld the the witness of the martyrs, they were convicted and they were converted on the very spot. Because those pagans saw something in the face of the Christians that they'd never seen before. How can these Christians die and be burnt alive at the stake with so much peace and joy and assurance in their countenance? In fact, notice what Eusebius, how he described this time period. We saw the most marvelous inspiration, a force which was truly, truly divine, and the readiness of those who had faith in the Christ of God. Immediately, one sentence had been pronounced on one group. Another party came before the tribunal, acknowledging themselves Christians and remaining unmoved. Friends, I like that word. They were unmoved. Nothing could shake them. Unmoved before dangers and torments of all kinds. Indeed, they reasoned with what? Joy, the final sentence of death. They sang hymns and offered thanksgiving to God of all until their last breath. In other words, many of these Christians... They were burnt at the lie, but they were singing while they were burning. How could that be? It seemed like there was no pain in their countenance, but only peace and calm rest and assurance. And as the pagan persecutors looked upon the countenance of the Christians, these pagans realized that they were strangers to such hope. They, they, that, that, that they did not know the peace and the joy that these Christians had. You see, these Christians testified with their blood in the power of the gospel that is stronger than even death. And the pagans began to desire what these Christians had. And so as one would die for the faith, ten would spring up and say, I want what that Christian had. I now want to accept the peace of Jesus. And so the more they were mowed down, the more they grew in number. And by the way, brothers and sisters, if you want to win your loved ones to Jesus, follow that example. Live like a Christian. Let individuals, let your family members and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers see the peace of Jesus in your life, even in the midst of trial and tribulation and conflict and financial difficulties and being diagnosed with diseases. Let them see that you have peace and calm assurance. Don't let anything in this world move you stand firm and as individuals as your family members see that you are unmoved by the trials of life they're going to say wow you have something what is it about you i want what you have and then you have opportunity to tell them it's not me it's jesus can you say amen and you give the glory to god and that's exactly what took place brothers and sisters and by the way persecution kept the church pure from compromise because those who joined the church They realized that by doing so, they could very easily lose their lives. And so it was serious conversions, serious commitments that were taking place. And Satan saw that persecution could not destroy the church of God. The more they they were persecuted, the more they grew. And so what Satan had to do, he had to change his strategy. Because God's people died with the blessed hope burning in their hearts. So persecution wasn't working. So he changed his strategy. And basically, this is what the devil said. If I can't beat them outwardly, then I will join them. If you can't beat them, join them, right? 
If I can't beat them outwardly, then I will join them and I will corrupt them from the inside out. And this is where the next horse comes upon the sea. Notice with me now in verse 5, Revelation 6, verse 5. The Bible tells us, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I, and I beheld, and lo, a what color horse? A black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances, some scales in his hand. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Here we find a bargaining rider in black. And friends, as you notice what he's offering, he has a pair of, uh, of balances, scales in his hand. And if you calculate what he's, what he's offering for, what he's asking for, he's asking for too much for too little in return. You see, the black horse time period represents the time when compromise and corruption crept within the church. In fact, I want you to notice what the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 1, the Bible says that a false or a deceitful balance is what? Abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You see, the balance, the scales that he has in his hand is a false balance. In other words, it was during the time when the church, uh, deceit and false doctrines began to creep within, within the church. Deception and compromise brought untold abominations and things that were not according to the will and the word of God. You see, friends, the dark horse time period represents the time when the Christian faith was a compromise and corrupted faith, where corruptions that came from paganism crept within. Satan changed his strategy and he infiltrated the church, bringing a false light, a false balance. It's the time that paganism entered into the church and corrupted it from the inside out. And friends, we find that there was also a famine during this time period. The writer is asking for too much, for too little in return. It represents a time of famine, the famine of God's food, the word of God as the church began to take advantage of the weakness of the people. And friends, this black horse time period is a fit description of the beginning of the medieval church, the church that began during around the dark ages. And by the way, friends, the apostle Paul prophesied that corruption would creep within. Notice what he said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. The Bible tells us, but the day will, that day will not come unless the what? Falling away comes first and the man of sin be revealed. You see that expression, the falling away. In the Greek, it's the word, the expression, the great apostasy. In other words, the apostle is saying that the, a great apostasy would take place within the church as the man of sin, the Antichrist, would now come within the temple of God, sitting in the New Testament church, corrupting it from the inside out. Well, how would apostasy take hold in the church? Notice in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, the apostle wrote, for I know this, that after my departing, stop right there. The Apostle Paul lived in what color horse time period? What color horse time period did the Apostle Paul live? In the white horse, right? And he's saying, after my departing, in other words, after the white horse time period, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, wolves will begin to devour the sheep. What color horse time period does that sound like? That sounds like red, doesn't it? Where wolves will come in to persecute the flock of God. But then after that, notice, also of your own selves, shall men arise, speaking what kind of things? Perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's the black horse time period, friends, where Satan changes his strategy. Instead of devouring the sheep, he clothes himself in the garments of a sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he enters within the church speaking perverse things, blasphemy, things that are not according to God's word. Instead of using force, 
Satan would use flattery. Instead of using weapons, he would use false words. In fact, Daniel described the same time period in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 12. Notice what it says. He cast down the truth to the ground, and it, speaking about deception and deceit, it practiced and it prospered. During this time period, the truth of God's word was trampled upon, and error and false doctrine began to prosper. And during this time period, salvation through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church. And not only that, but the teachings of God's word were approved now by church councils instead of the Bible. And how in the world could this happen to the church? Well, let me give you the historical setting. The historical setting is this. The pagan Roman Empire was falling apart. It was beginning to fall. Not only were the barbarian tribes invading different territories of the pagan empire, but Rome itself was a divided kingdom, and that which brought division was there are two major religions fighting for supremacy, paganism and Christianity. And friends, Constantine realized that a divided kingdom cannot stand. And so paganism was the state religion, and the pagans were actually persecuting the Christians. And so in order to save the divided kingdom of Rome, Constantine united the two religions, paganism and Christianity, how? By introducing a compromise between the two religions. Constantine claimed to have a dramatic conversion to Christianity. And he then made Christianity the state religion in the Roman Empire. So from being pagan Rome, it now was transferred into papal Rome. He made Christianity a state religion. But friends, he was not truly converted. This was strictly a political move in order to save the divided empire of Rome. You see, Constantine was not converted. He was still a pagan at heart. And in joining the Christian church, he did not renounce paganism. He simply brought it right into the church. In fact, notice what history tells us. It describes this time period. In the interval between the days of the apostles and the conversion of Constantine, rites and ceremonies of which neither Paul nor Peter ever heard crept silently into use and then claimed the ranks of what? Of divine institutions. You see, the Christians, many of the Christians at Rome accepted the compromise because they were tired of being persecuted. They said to the pagans, okay, you're going to become Christians? Wonderful, wonderful. You can come right on in. And with them came pagan doctrines and practices. And the mindset was this. How can we as Christians make Christianity more comfortable for the pagan converts? And so what did they do? They did exactly what many churches are doing today. They lowered the standard of truth. They watered down the message of the gospel for the sake of having a larger membership. Friends, this is a terrible thing because what it did, it corrupted the Christian church. In fact, notice what happened. The development of Christian doctrine. On page 372, another historical reference, it says, we are told by Eusebius, who is a church historian, that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion, the what religion? And what new religion was he recommending to the heathen? Christianity, right? He was saying, we all need to become Christians now. And so in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, he transferred into it, into what? Into Christianity. All the outward ornaments, 
to which they, the pagans, had been accustomed in their own religion. In other words, they lowered the standard of truth for the sake of more membership. They said, let's, let's just allow them to bring the world and worldly practices within the church so that they can be more comfortable. You see, it doesn't really matter. As long as they're Christians, as long as they take the name of Christ, it's all right. They can live however they want to live as long as they profess faith in Christ as their master. Friends, many churches are making the exact same mistake and that's why many christian churches today they're worshiping god in spirit but not in truth it is a counterfeit worship friends they worship god but in vain what were some of these outward ornaments or symbols of paganism that entered into the church i want you to notice the primary ornament of paganism are images of the sun god notice what it says in history constantine's coins bore on the one side the letters of the name of christ and on the other the figure of who of the sun god as if he could not dare to relinquish the patronage of the bright luminary you see friends the sun god was the primary god in paganism and pagan worship and so these were the ornaments images of the sun god that were brought within the christian church to make the pagans uh, have an easier time converting into christianity and friends do we see images of the sun god in the churches of today still Absolutely, yes. Let me share with you a few examples of this. And by the way, friends, in sharing these examples, we're not standing in judgment on anyone's personal relationship with God. Can you say amen? Because remember, God has his people in every single church, every single fold, every single denomination that are living up to all the light they know. And because they're sincere living up to all the light they know, while they may not have all the light, God recognizes them as his sheep and as his people. Can you say amen? So we're not judging anyone's heart, but friends, we can judge the fruits. Can you say amen? Jesus said, you shall know them by their, we can't judge the root, the motives, but we can look upon the fruit to tell whether it's good or it's bad. And so notice what happened. Here's the fruit, brothers and sisters. We still see images of the sun boldly demonstrated in the churches today. I want you to notice this statue of St. Peter in St. Peter's Basilica there in the Vatican City at Rome. And notice above his head is the sun disk. It was the image of the sun god that came from paganism. And many people believe that this is a statue of St. Peter. The sun disk above the head uh, shows is a sign of its pagan origin. And friends, many sincere, wonderful people travel all around the world every single year and they visit, they come to this statue and they kiss the toes on this statue. So much so that the toes have actually been worn down. And friends, many people are sincere. They're, they think that they're doing the right thing and, and they don't know that this is idolatry. What people don't realize is that this statue is not really St. Peter. In reality, it is a statue. It's a copy of the famous pagan god Jupiter that was brought into the church in the early centuries. It was simply renamed Peter to help the pagans identify this is our pagan god Jupiter, but now it's St. Peter, so it made the transition from paganism into Christianity more easy for the pagans. And friends, those who are kissing the toe, they're not kissing the toe of St. Peter, but they're kissing the toe of a pagan god Jupiter with a sun disk on his head. And friends, most statues are simply pagan gods that are renamed to Christian saints. Many other pictures and statues review its pagan origins. And I want you to notice, what is the primary focus in all the artwork? What is it? What is emphasized? It's the sun, friends. Do you see it? Here's the picture of the nativity. What is emphasized here? It's the sun because that was the primary god in pagan religions. The sun disk is accentuated over and over and over again. 
I took all these pictures, by the way, when I was in Rome and visiting the different churches just last year. In fact, notice this, the sun disk, and in the center is the all-seeing eye. It's a symbol of paganism right there within the churches. And if you notice this one, instead of Jesus being in the center, what's in the center? The sun disk, and on the sides is Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. In fact, this was a picture of a statue of was supposedly perhaps the Virgin Mary, Right there on the left side of the altar, there in St. Peter's Basilica, the headquarters in Rome. And friends, instead of holding baby Jesus, what is she holding? The sun disk. Why? Because this was the foremost God in paganism. So you see, friends, the images and the artwork shows the union of paganism and Christianity together. And by the way, friends, do you know what the, where the largest sun disk in the world is? It's right there in the Vatican City. The largest sundial in the world is right there. And friends, that pillar in the middle is an obelisk. It's a symbol of the Egyptian sun god Ra. It was taken from Egypt and brought to the headquarters there at Rome. It was a symbol of paganism and Christianity coming together. And it was during this age of compromise. The images of saints became intercessors, setting aside the role of the Holy Spirit. It's now that the church began to worship idols and crosses and pictures and saints and angels. Well, how in the world can the church do this? What about the second commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Well, friends, it was during this time of compromise, the black horse time period, where the Bible tells us that this power would think to change what? Times and laws, changing God's holy law. And friends, if you read the catechism, the second commandment is completely gone. It's deleted. That's the only way they could rationalize the bringing in of idols and praying to statutes. And in order to still have 10 commandments, as I shared with you before, they split the 10th commandment into two. Commandment 9 says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Commandment 10, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, changing God's times and laws. It was also during this time period where compromise and the pagans' day of the sun, Sunday, replaced the biblical Sabbath. You see, the pagans worshipped on the first day of the week. And so to help them transition to Christianity, they said, okay, we're going to continue to worship on the first day of the week. But now instead of worshiping the sun God on the first day of the week, we will worship Jesus in honor of the resurrection. Friends, Sunday worship comes from paganism. In fact, notice what history says. The retention of the old pagan name of Dia Solis for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of what? Pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, Pagan and Christian alike as the venerable day of the sun. Constantine recommended, let's all worship on the first day of the week so that we can all come together and be unified in the same religion. Now, he recommended it at first, but then in the year 321 AD, write it down, look it up for yourself. Constantine passed the first Sunday law, forcing people, now we must worship on the first day of the week. And he did this, friends, to unite the the divided Roman Empire. You see, compromise crept within the church. Satan changed the strategy. Instead of destroying them, he would corrupt them. And the Black Horse time period, the time of compromise, lasted from around 313 to 538 AD. This was the time period where corruption gradually settled within the Christian church. We need wisdom, we need power, and true love for each other. We have had so many big but empty words So we come before your face Asking for your grace Bring your people 
to a state of kingdom life. Restore your church again. Touch your people once again with your precious holy hand. We pray that your kingdom shine upon temporary but to restore authority and power let a mighty rushing wind blow in touch your people Lord, you see your tired servants and the broken, wounded soldiers. Oh, how much we need your precious healing hand. We need the power of the cross as the only source for us. When we stand up, facing final battle cry, restore your church again touch your people once again with your precious holy hand we pray that your kingdom shine upon this earth through a living glorious church Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're an intimate God. You love us and you're interested in us. And Lord, we thank you that by your gentle touch, we receive revival, restoration, and redemption. And so Lord, our prayer tonight is that you would truly touch your people once again. That you'd lift us, lift our minds from the cheap and shallow things of this world that we might see your plan and your will for us and help us to understand Lord 
how you're trying to bring us together and how in these last days you are restoring all truth to your people to your glorious living church on earth we thank you Lord that you've promised by your spirit to lead us and guide us not just into some truth but into all truth we pray this prayer in Jesus blessed name Amen